Our text this morning is Psalm 130. Psalm 130. This is one of the most beloved and one of the most important in the Psalms of Ascent. It's more personal than most of the Psalms in that group. You know, we've studied the whole group before. These are Psalms that were sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And most of them are, in fact, virtually all of them are short choruses, easy for children to learn, and uh, mostly designed for group singing. But this one is very personal. It doesn't sound like a chorus written for group singing. It speaks with an individual voice in the first person singular, Psalm 130. And what you hear right away in this psalm is a desperate plea for help. The opening verses convey a tone of loneliness and discouragement, deep discouragement. This is a lamentation and a plea from someone who is mired in the gloom of guilt and deep depression. He feels like he's drowning in the depths of a bottomless ocean, and he's lost in utter darkness. And here's what really intrigues me about this song. This is the prayer of a believer. These are the words of someone who knows the Lord. It's the song of a redeemed man in a time of trouble, and it's trouble of his own making which makes his burden even more difficult to bear. This is clearly not a cry for the salvation of a lost soul, you know, like the thief on the cross or the tax collector in uh, the parable of Luke 18, who Scripture says was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But the desperate tone of this psalm's Opening verse, while it sounds similar to that, this is nevertheless a prayer for mercy from a believer who is seeing with fresh eyes just how thoroughly sinful he is. And it doesn't become really clear until the second half of the psalm that this plea for mercy is coming from the heart of a person who is a believer. He knows the Lord. He... uh, it soon becomes clear that he understands how willing God is to forgive sinners. He celebrates that truth, and yet he doesn't take God's grace for granted. He can't cavalierly dismiss his own conscience when it smites him with a sense of his own guilt and shame. He doesn't try to comfort himself with an appeal to the doctrine of eternal security or anything like that. You know, every now and then, I run into little pockets of people who teach that since we are justified by faith, we've been declared righteous by God through faith, and we're promised full and free pardon for all of our sins, past, present, and future, these people who think this way say, well, then we don't even need to confess our sins to God or seek His forgiveness ever again. They say that even though Jesus taught us to pray, Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. But these guys think they know better. In fact, behind my, the door in my office, if you're coming to my office, there's a door that opens against part of my bookshelves, and it hides those books. And that's where I keep the heresy books, you know, <laughs> hidden behind the door. And behind that door, I have this bookshelf where I keep books that 
I need to refer to occasionally, but they're books I wouldn't recommend. And there's a short stack of books in that collection that have been written by authors who say that Christians should never ask God for forgiveness. In fact, they say that's an act of unbelief if you as a believer ask God for forgiveness because he's already granted us forgiveness. In fact, let me read you so you know how bad this is. an excerpt from an author who teaches that. He says, quote, God wants us to have confidence before him and to be more aware of our righteousness and his grace than we are aware of our shortcomings and mistakes. How can we have boldness before God if we have to grovel on our knees and plead for forgiveness every time we sin? Now, the psalmist sees things differently from that. He is going to make it clear that he already trusts the Lord for full forgiveness. He knows, verse 4, that with the Lord there is forgiveness. And he even ends this psalm with a triumphant expression of the boldest kind of confidence. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. But at the moment, he is utterly appalled and depressed by his own sin. And that's what has him in the depths. He feels his guilt. He knows that deliberate disobedience is out of place in the life of anyone who has been redeemed. And because after all, verse 4, one of the fruits of forgiveness is supposed to be a fear of God, a reverential fear. But sin is the exact opposite of godly fear. And so the psalmist hasn't been acting the way a believer should act. His sense of holy confidence before God has been shaken. And in a case like that, these fears and emotions that he expresses here are perfectly appropriate. This psalm is his response to God, and it's a good one. Spurgeon says this about it. I always quote Spurgeon, so I have to do that. Spurgeon says, Prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places. Deep places beget deep devotion. Depths of earnestness are stirred by depths of tribulation. Diamonds sparkle amidst the darkness, and prayer out of the depths gives glory to God in the highest. So let me read the psalm. Psalm 130, here it is. A song of ascents. I'm reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I called to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word I do wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. The watchman for the morning. O Israel, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities." Now, there's a note of something that we've actually heard before in the tone of this psalm. It reminds me of the prayer of Jonah in Jonah 2, which was literally a prayer out of the depths because he's praying, you know, from the belly of the fish, perhaps coming from a a lower depth, further below sea level than anyone had ever prayed before Jonah. 
And I suppose in a modern submarine, you could reach a lower depth than Jonah's and still be able to pray. But normally, prayer out of the depths is a miraculous thing. In fact, think about this, and it will encourage you. It wouldn't be possible for us to pray at all when we're in the depths if the Lord didn't sovereignly preserve and protect us like He did with Jonah. Whether we're talking about the depths of misery or literally the lower parts of the ocean, deep places have a way of engulfing and putting to silence anything that sinks into them. Jonah, for example, could not have prayed without the Lord's enablement. He, he would have drowned and his voice would have been literally silenced forever. But the fish that swallowed Jonah was a means of preservation and safety and correction rather than an instrument of divine wrath or judgment. It looked like punishment, perhaps, to the sailors who threw Jonah in the water, but this was really God's way of preserving and protecting him and, and bringing him to where he ought to be. And so, virtually all of Jonah chapter 2, many of you will remember that because I think we preached on it before, all of Jonah chapter 2 is a prayer that Jonah sent up literally from out of the depths. In fact, I'll read it for you, just the opening words of Jonah's prayer. Jonah 2, then Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to Yahweh, and he answered me. I cried for help from the belly of Sheol. You heard my voice. You had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current surrounded me. All your breakers and waves passed over me. So he's literally in the depths, and he acknowledges that it's God who put him there. And here in our psalm, the psalmist prays, Out of the depths I called to you, O Yahweh. And just like the story of Jonah, it's clear from the full context of our psalm that the psalmist is in despair because of some sin or sins that he committed. So the guilt of his fail failure belongs to him, and it's weighing heavily on him, and that is what has thrust him into the depths of despair. It's not just garden variety depression. He is depressed and in the depths because he's feeling the weight of his guilt. Maybe it's a habit that he has failed to mortify completely, or, or a sin so shameful that it belies his profession of faith in God. But whatever it is, his assurance has been shaken by it, and this prayer is his plea to God. And we know the issue is sin because, verse 2, he's praying for mercy. The text here in the Legacy Standard Bible says, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. And that word supplication speaks of an earnest prayer for mercy. And it's a cry for help. He wants God's grace and his favor. It's a desperate cry for help. And that's exactly, in fact, how it's translated in the Christian Standard Bible. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. But the context here makes it clear that he knows he's seeking forgiveness. And so the help that he seeks lies in God's merciful mercy. He wants an undeserved pardon for his sins. If you're reading the ESV, it says this, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And that's a good translation. That is the proper sense of the Hebrew expression. 
He's pleading for God's mercy. He's feeling the disgrace and the despair that sin brings. He acknowledges that he's guilty. Verse 4, if you should keep iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Or just to paraphrase that part of the prayer, he's saying basically, Lord, if you were counting my sins with an eye toward judgment, I'd be doomed a hundred times over. And then, by the way, that's true of all of us. And that's why he says, who could stand? The answer he assumes is none of us. So this is a man in trouble, and the trouble apparently is of his own making. It's the fruit of his own sin, and he's keenly aware of that, and he's feeling the weight of his guilt, guilt like a massive concrete sarcophagus that's dragging him deeper and deeper into the depths. The psalmist here is he's actually having the very same kind of thought that provoked the Apostle Paul to write what he wrote in Romans 7. That was our scripture reading this morning. Romans 7, verse 21, Paul says, I find that the principle that is in me is that evil is present in me who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin which is in my members, And he summarizes it all with this sort of groan of personal agony. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Well, that's exactly the same mood that the psalmist was in when he wrote our psalm. And in fact, those two passages make an interesting comparison, and they also make an interesting contrast. As the apostle Paul ponders his sin in Romans 7, he exclaims about what a wretched man he is. As the psalmist ponders his sin, he exclaims about how remarkable the Lord's redemption is. And you know what? They're both right. Both of those are perfectly valid perspectives. And both Paul and the psalmist clearly see both sides. It's obvious from the psalm that the psalm writer deeply senses his own wretchedness, like, just like Paul. He feels wretched. And that sense of his wretchedness is what has put him in the depths in the first place. And it's also apparent in Romans 7 that Paul rejoices and rests in the Lord's redemption as well because immediately after he laments about how wretched he is, Paul says, "'Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord.'" And then he goes on to write an entire chapter, Romans 8, about life in the Spirit and the security of the one who trusts in the Lord. But what both of these passages reveal is that it is perfectly normal for any thoughtful believer, and it's a common and inescapable response, to feel the weight of our guilt and to seek the Lord's mercy even though we know we are justified, that there is no condemnation that will ever, ever come against us. But when we're sensitive to sin and aware of our own fallenness, especially in the aftermath of some egregious spiritual failure, we should sense uh, a feeling of sorrow, a degree of sorrow and shame and self-doubt. Because if you respond to your own sin with nonchalance or indifference, you ought to question your salvation. 
If your sin shatters your self-confidence and plunges you into the depths and makes you feel like Jonah in the, in the belly of that fish, like you're in the very belly of Sheol, this is a psalm that shows the way out of that. It's one of seven penitential psalms, seven psalms of repentance scattered through the Psalter, Psalms 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, our psalm, and Psalm 143. So it's scattered throughout. These are all prayers for relief when we are weighed down by sin. And since the time of the church fathers, actually, those seven psalms have stood out as models of how believers should confess their sin and seek God's forgiveness. And it's fitting that this little collection of 15 psalms, we call them the pilgrim psalms, collection of short choruses that pilgrims would sing, it's fitting that this should also include a psalm of penitence. Now, unfortunately, medieval Roman Catholicism ripped this psalm out of its context, and to this day, in Roman Catholic liturgy, Psalm 130 is used as a prayer for the souls of people supposedly in purgatory. And there's even an app for the iPhone. I don't recommend it, but there is an app on the iPhone called Catholic Meditations on Purgatory. So can you imagine doing your daily devotions meditating on purgatory? An idea that doesn't even exist in the Bible, but... You know, if you're steeped in Catholic dogma, it would be a frightful thought, purgatory. And, and the promo for that app says this, quote, Central to the app is Psalm 130, De Profundis, that's Latin. It's a traditional penitential psalm, they say. De Profundis, of course, that's Latin for out of the depths, the first words of this psalm. Catholic priests actually intone this entire psalm in Latin as if it were a prayer for the dead. I came across this 450-year-old comment by Solomon Gesner. He was an early Lutheran, one of the very first Protestants, early Lutheran commentator. He lived just one generation after Luther, and Gesner wrote a, a commentary on this psalm titled Disquisitions on the Psalter on all of the psalms, actually. But here's what he says about Psalm 130, quote, This psalm has been perverted to the most disgraceful abuse in the popedom, that it should be mumbled by the lowest voice, by slow bellies, in the sepulchral vigils for their liberation of souls from purgatory, as if the psalmist were here treating of the dead, when he has not even spoken a word about them. But, Leaving the buffooneries of the papists, we will rather consider the true meaning and use of the psalm. I love when men are that frank. You know? I love that. Candor is a good thing. And from there, he writes his commentary on, this, on Psalm 130. In fact, speaking of Lutherans, this psalm has always figured large in Lutheran worship because Martin Luther himself loved this psalm. He rejected the use of Psalm 130 as a prayer for the dead, but he embraced it as a perfect expression of his own struggle with the failings of his human fallenness. Luther even wrote a hymn 
based on this psalm. In German, it's called Austeifer, Austeifer not, actually. And I don't know why we don't sing this hymn anymore, because it's a great one. Here is the first stanza of the English translation. From the depths of woe I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. Turn, Lord, a gracious ear to me, and hear my supplication. If thou didst iniquities mark, our secret sins and misdeeds dark, oh, who could stand before thee? It's a nice hymn, and it perfectly reflects what the psalm says. Luther constantly went to Psalm 130 in times of trouble and depression. He referred to it as a Pauline psalm because it echoes so many of the same doctrinal themes that reverberate through the Apostle Paul's writings. And in 1530, when Protestantism was on trial, Luther was on trial at the Diet of Augsburg, that that was an imperial hearing convened by the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire. And Luther was forbidden to attend by his own liege lord, out of his own protection, the Duke of Saxony, because the Duke was afraid that Luther would be imprisoned or he would be burnt as a heretic by Roman Catholic authorities. And so he locked Luther up, and Luther spent six months holed up in the castle at Coburg, which is when he translated the Bible into German. But cut off from fresh air and exercise, Luther, who was prone to melancholy anyway. Luther suffered from depression and migraines so severe that at one point he fainted. And when he regained consciousness, Luther said to his friends who were standing around him trying to revive him, and he suddenly wakes up and he says, come, let us sing that psalm out of the depths, and let's do it in derision of the devil. He said he believed that the message of this psalm would severely hurt the feelings of the devil. I like that. 194 years after that, another Lutheran, Johann Sebastian Bach, wrote a cantata based on Luther's hymn version of this. And then in our generation, an Anglican composer, John Rutter, made this psalm, Psalm 130, the second movement of his Requiem. Some of you are familiar with that. So the musical pedigree of this psalm is long and rich. John Owen, who was the greatest, I think, of the Puritan theologians, in all of his voluminous writings, and I have a shelf full of his writings, there's a ton of stuff there, but in all of that, he wrote only two works of verse-by-verse exposition. One of them is a massive seven-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews, but the other one is also massive for what it covers, 325 pages as an exposition of Psalm 130. And for John Owen, this psalm marked a major turning point in his life and ministry. He says he ministered for several years without fully grasping what it means to have access to God through Christ. It's kind of a conversion experience for him to, to grasp what this psalm is saying. And then Owen says, the Lord, and I'm reading exactly from what Owen wrote, quote, the Lord was pleased to visit me with sore affliction, whereby I was brought to the mouth of the grave, and under which my soul was oppressed with horror and darkness. But God graciously relieved my spirit by a powerful application of Psalm 130, verse 4, 
but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And evidently, Owen was describing there an experience that came fairly early in his ministry when he had a crisis of confidence. He lost his assurance, came to a point of despair in the midst of some affliction where he actually doubted his salvation. I gather some sin or some spiritual lapse of his own was at the root of it, and that's why this particular psalm showed him the way out, because that's the whole point of the psalm. It shows us the way up and out of personal defeat and discouragement, and it brings us back into the bright light of full assurance. And if you're someone who is easily shaken by your own failures, so you have difficulty finding settled assurance, you ought to memorize this psalm. You can recite the words of this text, as Luther said, in derision of the devil. Every time the accuser points to some inconsistency or transgression in your life and and tries to tell you that your faith is in vain. Now, look at the structure of the psalm. This divides evenly into four strophes of two verses each, and each section has a different tone. Each stanza is a little bit brighter than the the previous one. So the psalm moves us from the depths to the heights by degrees. It's a perfect psalm for the pilgrims that were singing it on their way to Jerusalem because it's uphill all the way. It's a great psalm for an uphill journey because although it starts on a depressing note, it ends with one of the most uplifting choruses in this whole collection of pilgrim psalms. So here's the breakdown. Verses 1 and 2 are a cry to God. Verses 3 and 4 are a confession of guilt. Verses 5 and 6 are a crescendo of gladness. And verses 7 and 8 are a chorus about the gospel. I'll go back over that, so if you want to take them down. But in the first two verses, the psalmist is pleading. The next two verses find him trusting Verses 5 and 6 are all about waiting, and verses 7 and 8, the theme is hoping. And as we progress then from contrition to humility, finally to hope, each mood provides the fuel for the next. His, His contrition is what humbles him, his humility is what provokes him to wait, and while he is waiting, he finds hope. And as you'll see, this is not a vague sort of wistful hope. That word in English is problematic sometimes because the biblical idea of hope is is a certainty, an absolute certainty. It's a, a settled rest in the knowledge that with Yahweh there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption. And it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You hear all the certainty that's wrapped up in that. So Let's take these stanzas and we'll look at them one at a time. First is a cry to God, verses 1 and 2. And in fact, next to the famous opening of uh, the the opening line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. That's Psalm 22. Aside from that, this may be the most forlorn and desperate line In all of the Psalms, out of the depths I called to you, O Yahweh, O Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. This is the song, as I said, of a redeemed man who's in trouble, and it's trouble of his own making. He's been brought low, and he knows it's by his own fault, and so the prayer is a prayer for mercy. This is not like Psalms 120 and Psalm 129, the the plea of someone who is afflicted by wicked enemies. Those are two other of the pilgrim choruses where the psalmist is pleading with God, but in that case, he's pleading for deliverance from enemies. And it's not like Psalm 17, which starts out, Hear a righteous cause, O Yahweh. Give heed to my cry of lamentation. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. That's Psalm 17. This is different. This is a cry from someone who knows he has brought trouble on himself because of his own sin. And his own, his own guilt is what has, has brought him into the depths of depression and desperation and disconsolation. He's greatly burdened by this guilt. And there's a note of helplessness in the plea. Whatever self-confidence got him into this predicament is shot. He has reached the end of himself. He's like the prodigal son. You know, Luke 15, verses 16 and 17 says this about the prodigal son. He was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. But, Scripture says, he came to himself, meaning he came to his senses. And that's what happens to the psalmist here. He's come to his senses. When we have to be brought to our senses by the consequences of our own sin. It's a pretty dismal awakening, and so he expresses that here. No soul could ever sink into a darker or more distressing depth than the pit of sin. The descent, you know, it usually starts gradually, almost imperceptibly, because sin looks enticing and pleasurable, and there seems so little danger if we just dip a toe in it. It feels so good. So why not go wading ankle deep? That's no big deal, we think. But sin is, is, is a thick, sucking quicksand that is bordered by steep, slippery banks. And we don't even begin to sense the danger until we're already in over our heads. That's how sin works. It always promises pleasures, and Scripture even acknowledges that there are passing pleasures that can be derived from sin. But the aftermath of sin is nothing but gloom and sorrow, and the wages of sin ultimately is death. The solicitation to sin always points to those passing pleasures. It's an appeal to the flesh. Or in the words of James 1, verses 14 and 15, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. That's what Scripture calls the deceitfulness of sin. And the psalmist has fallen into some sin, and he's now sunk deep in it. He's in the depths. It's well over his head. Whatever pleasure he was promised at first is now gone. And all he is left with is horrible shame and the relentless voice of a troubled conscience and a savage sense of regret. He's in the dark depths of gloom and guilt, weighed down by the 
knowledge that his despair is the fruit of his own folly. He feels the dishonor of it. He thinks he has alienated himself from God. And Jonah, you know, described the very same feeling in his prayer from inside the fish. Jonah chapter 2, verse 4, so I said, I have been driven away from your sight. He's saying it feels like he's on the very doorstep of hell. It seems like there's no way up from here. And if you've ever reached that point in your own experience, you understand how, how God, who sits on high, can seem remote and unreachable from a depth like that, which is what prompts the plea of verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. There's a, a desperate urgency there that the strongest words couldn't possibly convey. But you know what? God isn't really remote. As David says in Psalm 139, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will bruise me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not too dark for you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. That's David's prayer to God. Now, Notice the nature of the plea in our psalm. And I want you to notice it's not a plea of innocence. He's not pleading his own case. He's not asking God to hear a righteous cause like he does in, in Psalm 17. He's not protesting that he doesn't deserve to be brought so low. This is just a repetitive appeal to the Lord for mercy. He speaks of it in the plural, in fact. My supplications plural. He's begging. He's imploring the Lord with these relentless petitions for clemency, even though he knows he has no righteous claim to God's forgiveness. So this is not at all like those psalms where the psalmist is beseeching God to overthrow some enemy or to make right some horrible injustice. There's a clearly implied confession of guilt in this. And stanza two then takes up that theme. So stay with me here, especially if you like to take down the outline. Here it is. The first two verses are a cry to God. Verses two and three are a confession of guilt. Actually, verses three and four are a confession of guilt. As he contemplates his guilt, sort of set against the backdrop of a God whose righteousness rules out every imperfection, the psalmist realizes the utter hopelessness of, of trying to remedy his own sin or to measure up to the divine standard. He's too far into the depths for that. He can't pull himself out. He can't make himself good enough to, to uh, receive the Lord's approval. And he realizes he's not alone. All of humanity is in that same predicament. It's why we need a Savior. That's why the gospel teaches us that the righteousness that saves us is not our own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ because our own righteousness will never be good enough. And he's far enough in the depths that that's all he can see. His righteousness is never going to be enough to earn God's favor. All he has left is to plead for God's mercy. 
And he realizes, like I said, that all humanity is in the same predicament. The, the average person foolishly sees that as a reason for self-confidence. Because, you know, we think, well, I'm not as bad as most people. I, I'm okay. God will overlook all but the very worst sins. And so if I do my best, God will surely accept that. But he won't. Because unless you are absolutely perfect, and trust me, you're not, your best will not be good enough to earn God's approval. And Jesus was emphatic about that. He said, you are to be perfect. How perfect? As your heavenly Father is perfect. That's Matthew 5, 48. And it comes in a context where Jesus had already pointed to the Pharisees and said this in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that. Of all the rigorous religious orders who ever claimed to follow the scriptures to the letter, the Pharisees really were the most meticulously painstaking in their observation of legal minutia, the, the small details of God's law. They tried to keep every jot and tittle of it, or they thought they did, and still Jesus said they weren't fit for heaven. You got to be better than that, he said. And the psalmist gets that. Verse 3, if you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? Again, to paraphrase, if the Lord kept a record of our sins, none of us would be able to stand before him. And here's the problem for unbelievers. The Lord does keep a meticulous record of our sins. Not one transgression ever escapes his omniscient notice. Scripture says even our secret sins will one day be exposed. And Jesus said every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. That's Matthew 13, or 12, Matthew 12, verse 36. Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 2 and 3, every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you've spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you've spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Which is his way of saying, look, God knows and sees everything. Hebrews 4.13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. And furthermore, Ecclesiastes 12.14, God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. And in Exodus 23, verse 7, God says, I will not justify the guilty. And the psalmist is aware of all of that. He knows that God does keep a record of sin. And because God is righteous, Psalm 1, verse 5, the wicked will not rise in the judgment. So here's our first clue that this psalm is from the heart of a genuine believer. Because he also knows that God has agreed to blot out the record of sins on behalf of all who come to him in repentant faith. The psalmist, of course, couldn't see the full scope of the gospel. He didn't know that that forgiveness would be made possible by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, but he did know that God had promised to blot out the record of sins, 
for everyone who repented and came to him in faith. Isaiah 43, verse 25, God is speaking here and he says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. A chapter later in Isaiah 44, verse 22, he says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a cloud. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. He's speaking to believers there. Isaiah 1.18, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. And Jeremiah 31.34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And Scripture is full of promises like that. After God saying, I won't justify the guilty, he then promises to justify those who are righteous by faith. The righteous shall live by faith, Scripture says. My favorite of all of those promises, Micah chapter 7, verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You see how that goes with his psalm? He's going to cast our sins into the depths of the sea. He pulls the believer up out of the depths, but he leaves the guilt there. And the promise is not that God will literally forget about what we've done. Omniscience, you know, is one of the attributes of deity, and God is immutable. He doesn't divest himself of his omniscience. He knows everything. He still does. You see an example of this, in fact, at the end of David's life. David was forgiven of his sin with Bathsheba and his treachery against her husband Uriah. We know he was forgiven. And yet, there is an epitaph in 1 Kings 15 that describes David's faithful life And it mentions the case of Uriah the Hittite as an egregious exception to what was an otherwise faithful life. So God didn't literally forget that it happened. But when he says, I'll not remember your sins, what he was saying is that he would graciously pass over the guilt of it because he would impute that guilt to Christ who would die to pay the penalty of the sins of his people and thus... God eliminated David's guilt forever, blotting it out of his ledger so that although God still remembered the act, he didn't hold the guilt against David. That is how forgiveness always works. God does not simply overlook or pretend it never happened. We talked about that, I think, last week. But he erases the guilt by bearing the penalty of sin himself in the person of Christ who is our perfect substitute, Christ thus pays the price of sin in full. He satisfies the demands of justice. He pacifies the wrath of God against sin. He blots out our guilt so that God can be faithful to his gracious promise of mercy, and yet he does that without compromising his impeccable justice. As we said last week, God is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. And it's perfect justice because every sin is ultimately paid for one way or the other. Christ died for the sins of those who trust him. Unrepentant sinners will reap the wages of their own sin throughout eternity. And the psalmist, of course, as I said, he had no understanding 
at least not a full understanding of how Christ would offer one sacrifice for sins forever. That was a mystery that was hidden until Christ revealed it. But the psalmist nevertheless knew by faith that God is both faithful and just. And so when he promises redemption, he provides it. And in fact, this whole psalm is a perfect illustration of that familiar promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whatever the limitations of the psalmist's understanding, he knew well enough to claim the promise of forgiveness. He knew from the Old Testament scriptures alone that God is good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon him. The psalmist had access to that and many other promises in Scripture where sinners are told they can find mercy by turning to Yahweh and confessing their sin. Isaiah 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 43, 25, this is God speaking again, I, he says, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Numbers 14, verse 18. Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Psalm 86, verse 5. You, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. I could go on for a long time quoting Old Testament texts about how eager the Lord is to forgive. And the writer of this psalm was clearly familiar with those promises, and it became a lifeline to him when he found himself in the depths. Look at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, I thought long and hard about that verse because at first glance it seems paradoxical, doesn't it? I mean, it's clearly an inspired thought. This is not the product of human wisdom because the carnal mind would be inclined to say, with you there is forgiveness, so I don't need to fear. And indeed, that is the whole spirit behind this false teaching that believers don't need to ask for forgiveness or confess their sins. But that's antithetical to the psalmist's attitude. Well, here's what he's saying in verse 4. Only God can forgive sin. Pardon and cleansing from sin cannot be obtained through any other means or from any other source. We can't earn forgiveness for ourselves. Only God can grant it by mercy. We don't earn it. There's no better reason then to fear God. We're doomed without His forgiveness. And listen to Proverbs 8.13. The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. That's the very definition of what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, wrapped up in that concept is an absolute hatred of evil. And then you put that next to Psalm 36, verse 1. Transgression declares to the ungodly within his heart, there is no dread of God before his eyes. In other words, you couldn't sin and hold the fear of God before your eyes at the same time. If you really fear God, that should keep you from sinning. And a proper fear of God starts with a holy horror and a sanctified dread at the thought of God's displeasure. 
It's the spirit that lies at the heart of genuine reverence for God. I hate to hesitate to to use the word reverence as a definition for fear because I think people do that sometimes to gloss over the idea that there is a certain amount of terror wrapped up in the concept of true faith. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, Scripture says. So the fear of God is not the the sort of artificial atmospheric reverence, you know, that we associate with high church liturgy. You know, you, you decorate the room with candles and incense and priestly vestments and, and, and we're very reverent. But the fear of God instead is a sanctified apprehension of God's majesty, which causes the believer both to recoil at the, the very notion of trifling with God, but at the same time, to be in absolute awe and wonder and, and enthralled with the beauty of God's glory. We don't take His mercy for granted. We don't turn the grace of God into sensuality. There is a genuine holy terror in the idea of saving faith. You hear an echo of this kind of fear in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, where he says, He's discussing this whole idea of justification by faith, and then he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he gives this answer, may it never be. And you read that with a tone of shock, and and he's appalled that anyone would even suggest that notion. We fear God, and it's not a chicken-hearted or irrational fear, but it is a true fear nonetheless. It's not the fear of superstition, but it is a legitimate, sensible spirit of overwhelming awe in the presence of God. And this kind of fear is not incompatible with the biblical admonition to draw near with confidence before the throne of grace, come boldly before the throne of grace. But you still do it in fear. In fact, notice the verse that immediately follows Verse 5 of our psalm, I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. I'm intrigued by the close juxtaposition of, of two polar opposite dispositions, you know, on the one hand fear, on the other hand hope. The fear is rooted in the fact that we, we understand the gravity of our sin, we know what it really deserves. And the hope is because we have laid hold of that promise of mercy, which we don't deserve, but we have full trust in the faithfulness of God. And that's exactly how the psalmist is thinking here. His heart is clearly calmed as he recites the truth of God's eagerness to forgive. There's a a distinct and and a very sudden change in mood with verse 5. And in fact, that gets us to stanza three of this psalm. Here's our outline. He starts verses one and two with a cry to God. That gives way, verses three and four, to a confession of guilt. Now, stanza three, verses five and six, we'll call it a crescendo of gladness. I'm just trying to, you know, be a good Baptist here and alliterate it for you. But the theme of this stanza is waiting. Verse 5, I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. He's gone from 
sheer desperation in verse 1 to an almost supernatural optimism in verses 5 and 6. Optimism, I almost said patience, but there's really nothing patient about it. He's eager. He's not impatient in any negative sense, but it's clear that he longs to see full redemption as soon as possible. I love the pathetic, rather the poetic imagery of verse 6. He is pathetic, by the way. I mean, he's he's full of pathos. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, the watchman for the morning. He repeats that last line just like our musicians always do. I, I I don't get why they do that, but I know why the psalmist does it. It's for emphasis. More than those watching for the morning, watching for the morning. The picture he draws here is of a watchman in the final watch of the night. You know, I, I used to be a night watchman in, of all places, a funeral home in downtown Chicago. Have I never told you about that? I won't, I won't gross you out with tales of it, but I was the night watchman. And when you're awake at night, the morning comes much more slowly than it does when you're asleep. And you're not particularly, you know, eager to get up when you're asleep. But if you're awake like a watchman, you can't wait for the morning. You know, these days I'm hardly ever eager for morning to come speedily. But when I was working on that job, the sunrise seemed agonizingly slow to come. You don't know what expectation feels like if you've never been in a situation like that. But what he's expressing here is an eagerness for the Lord to intervene and lift him permanently out of the depths and up into perfect glory. He longs for that. And actually, it's not an event that he hopes for. It's the Lord himself. My soul waits for the Lord. In the meantime, he's nurturing this sense of profound hope because he knows his redemption is coming. Notice verse 5. His hope is grounded in the Word of God, which is the only secure place for anybody's hopes to be anchored, not in the philosophies of the worldly wise, not in the wild prophecies of charismatic charlatans, not in military or political might or political clout, not in any of the other things that people typically anchor their hopes in, because all of those things change constantly, and they will ultimately pass away, but the Word of God stands unchanged and unchanging eternally, and God will fulfill it all. Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter from the law to fail. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, all flesh is like grass, and in all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. He's quoting from the Old Testament there, by the way. That's Isaiah 40. And, he's, and furthermore, he says, God has magnified his word according to all his name. And Jesus says, the scripture cannot be broken. Hope in the word of God is as sure as the immutable character of the Lord of glory himself. And the earnest expectation described in this third stanza is something every genuine believer ought to be able to relate to. This is the realm in which true believers live. 
looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Titus 2.13. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 3.20. And according to 2 Peter 3.12, an eager expectation of the Lord's return defines, in Peter's words, what sort of people we ought to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And in fact, according to Romans 8.19, all creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Whether you know it or not, that is your deepest desire to see the fullness of redemption. Everything about that hopeful longing should energize and stimulate our sanctification. It encourages us and it stimulates us to love and good deeds, according to Scripture, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. By now, the psalmist is so full of hope that in contrast to how he started this psalm, his heart is gladdened, his, his, his tongue is loosed, and he closes the psalm with a a chorus calling all Israel to share his hope. Now notice, in the span of these eight short verses, the psalmist has run the gamut of emotions from the depths now to the heights. And the only circumstance that is changed is he's laid hold of God's mercy by faith. It's a perfect illustration of how the gospel brings us up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and sets our feet up on a high rock. That's what is celebrated in this final stanza. So to review, stanza one is a cry to God, stanza two is a confession of guilt, stanza three is a crescendo of gladness, and now the closing stanza, a chorus about the gospel, verses seven and eight. And I love the confidence in these two closing verses. Notice the sudden shift in his perspective. The previous stanzas were peppered with first-person singular pronouns. I called to you. Hear my voice, my supplications. I wait, my soul waits, I hope. I, I pointed out that this is, the, this is unique in these pilgrim psalms because it's a song of an individual. It's not a group chorus. But now his attention turns outward. O Israel, he talks to his fellow travelers, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption. And it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He's not talking about deliverance from their enemies. He's talking about redemption from their iniquities, which really, even in, in our corrupt society, is what ought to consume our thoughts. Redemption from our own sins before deliverance from the troubles all around us. And notice what he celebrates. He mentions two things. The Lord's loving kindness, that's the root of gospel truth, and also abundant redemption. That is what God's steadfast love procures for his people. And I like that expression, abundant redemption, which is what he was praying for in verses 1 and 2. And now by faith, he has laid hold of it, and he wants the whole nation to join him in celebration of it. For those who may worry that their sins are greater than the grace of God, that is not so. With him is abundant redemption. And that echoes Isaiah 55, verse 7. He will abundantly pardon. 
We worship a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. That's Psalm 86, 15. In other words, as we often sing, God's grace is greater than all of our sin, and it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There's a prophetic sense in that promise, of course. It looks forward to a time when national Israel will be grafted back into the olive branch, and in the words of Paul from Romans eleven twenty six, so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. But the main point of the psalmist here is not to lay out a prophetic timeline, a chart that outlines the future. He's, he's urging his spiritual brethren, the the true people of God, genuine believers, the real offspring of Abraham, to wait for Yahweh. His point simply is that God's promise of full and final redemption will eventually come to full fruition. Be patient. It's coming. And in the meantime, we hope. And you understand, again, that when the Bible speaks of hope, it's talking about a forward-looking, settled, confident faith. This is not a maybe or an uncertain wish. It's a secure promise. And in this case, it is the promise of full redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, not only from the guilt and punishment and consequences of sin. This is hope for a full, final redemption from sin's power and dominion. And even more than that, we look forward to an eternity of pure freedom from the very existence of sin. And meanwhile, we hope in the Lord, knowing that because of his loving kindness and abundant redemption, if our hope is anchored in the word of God, if we long for him more than the watchmen long for the morning, if we have laid hold of his forgiveness by repentant faith, then scripture says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to, an eternity of unspeakable blessing. Live in that light. Reckon it to be true. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess along with the psalmist that we desperately need your daily forgiveness. We couldn't stand before you if Christ had not borne the guilt of our sin and robed us in his perfect righteousness. And now we await with hope and confidence our final redemption. At times we groan along with the rest of creation, but we are saved into hope. And may that hope bear the fruit of sanctification in our daily lives as we await that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.